Welcome to Dallas. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and renewal of our world. We're so glad you're listening. Happy Mother's Day, moms. You have one of the not just most challenging jobs on the planet, but one of the most important. Welcome, everyone. Uh, we're so happy to have you here at Dulles. All right, I want to use Mother's Day today to more broadly celebrate the voice and influence of women. Uh, if, if you're single, if you've uh, never had children, uh, just, just women and the power that God intends to be displayed. And when I say power, that could almost be like a political statement. Uh, a, a better description of what I intend is the, the image bearer that you are to be as a woman. In Genesis 2, it's crystal clear. There's no argument. It could not be clear that God, in that sixth phase of creation, made male and female collectively in his image. And we, collectively, are to display the image of God in our world through our voices, our actions, our choices. And that's as much of an intention for women as it is men. I don't think anyone here questions this. I doubt too many people in our city or in our church are too concerned about whether women are influential or can be influential uh, I think there are pockets and locations, certain subcultures where that would be in dispute. But uh, in Dulles, Virginia and in Dulles Church, I think we would all say, well, of course, of course. A much more relevant uncertainty or concern or growing cynicism in our country and in our world is about the words of the Bible being the words of God. This is more and more disputed today or questioned. It's, it's assumed by many. Uh, I would say, just this is kind of anecdotal. I guess it's very subjective. But in my opinion, for those outside of the church, outside of faith, the predominant view of Scripture is that it's, it's antiquated. It's, it's wrong. It's harmful. Just this week... In fact, in the last four days, I, I heard twice, and I'm going to paraphrase these two separate statements into one because they were saying really the same thing. Uh, the statement was, you know, back when people thought the archaic, harmful text of Scripture were the words of God. And it was, it was just said as if everybody agrees, well, you know, the Bible is this outdated dangerous book of, you know, this ideology. And thank goodness we've advanced beyond the days of the Bible. That's, that's the sentiment was said. Like I heard this like on Wednesday and then I heard it a couple days later, just I think on Friday. Confidence in the Bible, in Scripture, is replaced by cynicism whenever a handful of key Scriptures are misunderstood. So I'm going to get back to to women here in just a moment. Maybe you see where I'm going with this. Uh, an example. An example is that God endorses slavery. This is, I, 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 I hear this regularly. I probably hear that sentiment once every couple months where someone actually believes 
that Scripture describes for us a God who supports and endorses slavery. This is just a, a, a tragic misunderstanding because of certain things that are said in Scripture of what God actually believes and what God has, has acted upon to, to reverse slavery. Beginning in the second book of Scripture, Exodus. The whole story of Exodus, the title of Exodus, is about the heart of God to hear the cry of those enslaved and to come to their rescue and free them from slavery, which becomes a precursor to what God's movement of love and justice would be all throughout Scripture, ultimately freeing humanity from the enslavement of our own selfishness. And yet, because of certain texts and how they're misunderstood or how they're interpreted, we have people, many people today, who think that somehow God endorses the, the concept of slavery. Another example is violence, that God is a God of violence. I hear this regularly. It's one reason that uh, Scripture is uh, children, people, are discouraged from reading Scripture today because... Not only is it a book of violence, but God, you know, advocates for violence. And it, it, again, it's, a, it's another tragic misunderstanding of the story of God. God didn't come into our world to bring violence. God came into our violence is the story of God. So much so that his son would endure the violence once and for all. Uh, unjustly, wrongfully accused, so that you and I could be free of any semblance of consequence, physical consequence, for selfish choosing. And so today I want to look at a place in the New Testament. There's really two. There are two very concerning places. That's the word. I'm going to use that word today because society and culture are extremely concerned about two places in the New Testament uh, that speak of women in a certain light. And it really can upend someone's trust or confidence that God has written us, has given us, really almost like a, our, our nation has a constitution, like this, this document that explains his heart, this love letter to us that describes who he is, his view of the world, and what he thinks of you and me. And so more than trying to make a case for God not only loving women but empowering women, uh, that, that's a given here at Dulles. It's something we model. Uh, it's something that we uh, practice weekly and daily. I really want to use this example as we celebrate women as, as a, a reinforcement, as an um, explanation of how Scripture can be misunderstood in hopes that you would Find confidence again in the words of God and Scripture. Or maybe turn back to the words of Scripture. Or maybe trust them for the first time in your life. Okay, so we're not going to focus on the one text. We're going to focus on the, the second, which is really the more concerning. When this issue comes up, theology books have been written. I went to seminary and... Uh, <clears throat> Spent three years studying these kinds of texts. When theologians and scholars debate this subject, uh, we're going to look at the second and the most concerning of the two examples this morning. Okay, so I'm going to just read it. 
Uh, there may be some here in just, you know, 45 seconds to a minute when I finish these handful of verses. You may be tempted to get up and walk out because of what we read from the words of the Apostle Paul. All right, so let me just read the text and then we're going to talk about it today. Paul says in 1 Timothy to young Timothy, Pastor Timothy, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Okay, here we go. Strap on your seatbelt or, or whatever, or just hold the hand, the, the uh, <clears throat> what is it next to you? Armrest. Oh, that took too long. Grip the armrest tightly. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed. Yeah, and it's, it's, Amy this morning was like holding back a gag when we read this. And I'm like, this is scripture. These are the words of Paul. Don't. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Okay. <clears throat> Sounds pretty discouraging if you care about women as influencers and leaders, empowered as world changers and teachers. This text can leave us with the dual effect of First of all, creating distrust that God, God's view is to support, empower, defend women. And particularly the idea that women are to display alongside men the image of God, which we learned from the very beginning in, in creation. It can really disrupt that idea. And it also can have the effect, like a few other key places, I've given some examples in Scripture, of assigning the words of the Bible to antiquated misogyny. All right, so let's unpack this together. And again, my, my, my hope today is that you would leave here today saying, huh, I think maybe I can trust Scripture instead of closing it as this outdated book and we're going to just kind of create our feel-good view of faith in God here at Dulles, we're actually going to rely on his words, his descriptions, his worldview, his instructions as presented to us in his story in scripture. All right, so we're going to do this exercise here. Uh, this is a context interpretation exercise. And about 10 or 11 of us this past winter on Wednesday nights, we did what we called the Ephesians Lab. We did a deep dive study on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And Tim Mackey, uh, a scholar out on the West Coast, he, he actually did a version of this scenario uh, that, that helped us. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to replicate this. It's a tool that helps us with interpreting or discerning properly a text. Okay, so let's say that uh, later today we go home and you're going you're gonna to get a note, you're going to get a letter. Uh, before 30 years ago, this probably most likely would have arrived in your physical mailbox at your home address on written paper. Uh, in ancient days, it would have been written on papyrus or some version of that. Today, let's say it's digital, of course. It arrives, uh, this, this, this written text arrives 
in your email inbox, or the text could actually come as a text message. It's, it's somewhat lengthy, four or five paragraphs, let's say, but what jumps out of you is something in the middle where your friend has written you this email, and they're saying in the middle of this email to you that yesterday they were in a coffee shop, and they were standing in line to order a coffee, and they passed by a table with two men talking, and this is what their email says to you. So I'm quoting from the email now. As they passed by the two men at the table talking, they heard one say intensely to another, we're going to go in there and take them out. Okay, so <clears throat> this, is, this is a text to you from a friend in an email. Now, you could assume you know what these men mean. You could draw your own conclusion, wow. That sounds ominous. One, my friend says in the email, one said intensely to the other, we're going to go in there and take them out. This sounds mysterious. Maybe scary. And so you start to picture the men in your mind. This is what we all do in stories. We, we're visual. So you're, you're now sketching what the table looked like, maybe what the men looked like, and what they're up to. And if we're not careful... We'll just decide what's going on or what's being described. Or, before we speculate too much, we could try to learn more of the context. Even just a little bit of context could help us discern or interpret what they might mean. So you email your friend back. Like, instead of like, oh, you better watch out for these men, or you start, you start posting on Facebook, God forbid, hey, there's two men in a coffee shop, and they're up to something. Instead, you email your friend, can, can you, tell me about these men. Do you know anything about them? No, I, I really don't know anything about them. And then you ask the question, well, what were they wearing? You could at least tell me what they're wearing. So here's a few scenarios, just different options. Let's say your friend replies back. They were, they were wearing dark hoods and masks and leather gloves. Okay, what... what what, is, what does that do to your scenario? What, that response, like, ooh, dark. Why in the daytime in a coffee shop are these men wearing masks? They're obviously trying to conceal their identity, right? So this maybe just feeds the speculation or the interpretation. These guys are probably not up to any good. They are, they're going to go take, take out bankers. Maybe it's an assassination conversation. But what if your friend, when you ask what were they wearing, what if your friend responds, they were wearing baseball uniforms. They were wearing high school baseball uniforms. What do you do now? Like, doesn't this alter the ominous, like, intensely said, we're going to go in there and take them out? Now we're going down the path of, oh, we don't know exactly what they're talking about, but it's likely they're talking about in a away game, going into another high school, into the stadium, and they're going to knock off somebody who's in first place or who's, who's doing well, right? What if your friend responds and says to your question, what were they wearing? They were wearing white medical robes, and they had stethoscopes around their necks. And now you reread it, and you think, we're going to go in there and take, take them out. 
wow. So now our thinking's reversed from ominous. Like these men might be inflicting harm. These men may be rescuing. Instead of like putting, this is, this is kind of detailed here, I guess, on a Sunday morning. Instead of putting bullets or something harmful in the, we're going to actually take them out. Or maybe, maybe tumors or maybe kidney stones. I mean, you know, we don't know exactly still. We don't know exactly the full context. But because we've asked questions of context, we're able to better discern or interpret what may be happening here. It's just like when somebody is weaving in, in my rear view mirror in traffic and it just looks super dangerous and they come up and they're tailgating me. And, you know, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'll say to Amy, you know, I don't know if I use the word jerk. I probably will. Maybe I do. Like, what is wrong with this? And they scream past you on Route 50 and you just, you know, everybody in the car is like super tense. Like, what is wrong with people today? Or we start talking about Northern Virginia or, you know, traffic. And then what if you just find out later that their child was sick and they're racing to the hospital? Doesn't it instantly change? Instead of this defensive, you suddenly want to, like, get out of the way or you want to help them get to the hospital. It's remarkable. With a little bit of context, you know, it just changes. Okay, so let's, let's do that. Let's do that here with this text. Let's start with the writer, Paul, the Apostle Paul. When we back up, and we can't look at all the examples. I have, an, an, I have several examples here this morning, and for the sake of time, I, I left them in my notes, but I knew I, we, we, can't, we don't have the time to cover all of these. We're going to look at one. One example in another writing in the New Testament. So Romans was written by Paul. It's arguably the most important theological document ever written. Bible scholars often agree on that. We have the Gospels presenting the eyewitness account of Jesus. But then when we get to Romans, the book of Romans, where Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome, he is articulating the remarkable of God's grace. You cannot earn God's love. You cannot earn God's rescue. He loves you. He died for you before you chose, before you were worthy. And this is, I'm summarizing quickly the heart and core of what Romans is about. And then he ends Romans, the letter to the Romans, with chapter 16. And he ends with this long thank you list of many church leaders who he's acknowledging have come alongside him, have labored with him, have done so much work in teaching to build up the church. Some have been imprisoned with him. And so Paul is just acknowledging, hey, church in Rome, I want you to take care of these people. I want you to honor them. I want you to understand the work that all of these people have done. And Paul begins by commending Phoebe. This is, there's no argument for, for, for traditional, more um, you know, Christian fundamentalists, I'd, I'd say, who want to argue this point that women actually literally need to be silent in church. There's just no argument that we're talking about a female Greek name here, Phoebe. In fact, the word sisters used, I commend you, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. A deacon, which was a place of leadership in the church, of the church in Sancria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Before Phoebe Buffet was Phoebe, co-laborer, builder of the church 
with Paul. This is, it's, it's just remarkable that in this long list of names, Paul begins with a woman. It's unthinkable. This is, in the ancient world, you can't find another example of this anywhere. Not just in Christendom, among those who follow Jesus, you cannot find in the ancient world a man, a leader, acknowledging other leadership and listing women. This, the movement of Jesus and the way of Jesus has already so altered, has so seismically shifted culture to be naming women among those who've influenced and led. So much so that some have been imprisoned along with the other apostles. Here's another remarkable fact about this and why Phoebe's listed first. This is common in the ancient world and it certainly was in the New Testament when a writer writes a letter and sends it to Ephesus or Corinth or Philippi or Rome uh, in all of those cases, that was Paul. The letter bearer was not Paul. Often he would arrive months later and would then live semi-permanently in that city, helping build the church, and then would go to another city. He would write letters ahead of time. The letter bearer is often the person that is commended first. And scholars agree the letter bearer of Romans to the Roman church was Phoebe. Now, what's interesting about this is not only does Paul entrust what many say is the most significant theology document ever written, not only is it entrusted in the hands of a woman, the letter bearer is often usually the one who would read the letter for the first time to the recipients and then was prepared by the writer to answer any questions. They understood the mission of the letter, why it was written, the timing, the context of what was going on. So then she went on behalf of Paul, delivers the letter. Most likely, the book of Romans was read for the very first time in a church gathering by Phoebe. And then answered questions. What did Paul mean in, you know, what we would say, chapter 3 or chapter 8? This is staggering in history. Not in our world, not in the 21st century. Not in the Western world and how we've evolved as a society, but in this, in the, in the ancient world, this is remarkable. Verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Also greet, greet also the church that meets at their house. Priscilla and Aquila are a married couple. And it's just interesting that Paul lists Priscilla first. The first two people in this long list of people that he's acknowledging as church leaders are women. And this suggests that possibly Priscilla has taken the, the lead in the host home, hosting the church in her home. Maybe Aquila is laboring, you know, in, in, in a job outside of the church, and Priscilla's doing a lot of the, the more active work of the church. Maybe that suggests why Paul lists her first. Greet my dear friend Eponidas, who was the first to convert to Christ in the province of Asia. That's interesting. Greet Mary, another woman, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews. This is a man and a, a husband and wife. My fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles. Junia is listed as a female apostle. A lot of people don't realize this. Okay, 
Now let me pull out of Romans 16 here, just back to our main point this morning. What is going on here? What is happening here? This seems like a big contradiction. Paul's writing to young Timothy, women should be silent in the church. They should learn in submission. Silence. You know, you get the impression like a woman asks, no, shh, you're a woman. You can't talk. Ask your question later. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the, the, the image that it, it conjures for me. But here he's acknowledging women who have worked and labored and traveled with letters to the churches, who've built the church in their homes. Honor them. I want to go back to our text, the, the, the hard one, not Romans 16, which we love, but the one that we don't like in 1 Timothy 2. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Instruction for the men, now instruction for the women. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Okay, when we ask questions of context, like, well, what were they wearing? You know, that, those kinds of, we find out, oh, the driver had a sick child, and they're racing to the, well, then suddenly we want to help. Okay, when we're asking these questions, we learn that Paul is writing to young Timothy, very young pastor. He's being encouraged, hey, don't let people look down on your youth. You are full of the leadership of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus. Well, in this context of 1 Timothy, this letter, we understand that Timothy is a pastor in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is a metropolis. You know, it would be a New York City today, or it would be a Tokyo, a massive city. Today, we find it in modern-day Turkey. And there are many, many religions. It's a very pagan a cult religious kind of, kind of city. But it was dominated by the massive sexualized religion of Artemis. Now, if you hear of Artemis today, you probably get excited like I do because it's NASA's new mission back to the moon. It was Apollo in the late 60s and early 70s, and now it's Artemis, which is interesting that Apollo and Artemis are related in Greek mythology. I believe they're brother and sister. Anybody know? Is that right? Artemis was essentially the female sex goddess in the temple. We have, we have pictures today of the, the today, a, a, a current photo of the temple ruins of Artemis. This is today. Some of the columns still standing. We have a rendering of what the, the temple actually looked like. It was massive. And this was the center of the city. All forms of worship and cult, uh, the cults and Religious cults and sects all really kind of related in some way or at least were centered around this, this iconic primary religion of Artemis where at its center was a female goddess and it was a female-only religion. And man, when you look into it, it's just super twisted. Today we would be like, yikes. Paul begins... This instruction to men, you know, we understand subcultures. We could look at places in America where there's certain ideologies or certain common traits. Um, here in Loudoun County, hunting 
is very popular. Some of you are hunters in the fall. I was in a meeting in D.C. Uh, for the film festival I run a few years ago. And they were like, hey, where do you live? You know, I live in Alexandria. I live in, you know, different parts. And I said, I live in Loudoun County. And they said, no kidding. This person said, you live in Loudoun County? Wow, you had a long drive today. (laughs) And then they said this. They said, is it true? I've heard that people see deer out there. They asked me this in a meeting. I was like, yeah. (laughs) Like, Like I was from, it was like I was from another planet, you know, like, Wow, hey, this guy lives in Loudoun County. Um, And, you know, that's where I learned that the Potomac River is called the Potomac Ocean. Some of you who work in D.C., you you hear that. Like, people in D.C. don't rarely cross the river. They don't cross the river. They don't have to. Anyway, it's an example of just subcultures right here within our country and within our region. How people think differently and, and even behave differently. Paul is addressing here at the beginning of this what can be a confusing text, that there are gender stereotypes in Ephesus. One in which men generally are known for a rough, by a rough argumentative attitude. This is common apparently for whatever reason. We don't know the reason. We don't know the full context. Maybe they're resentful for being in a female-dominated culture. What a reversal for our country's history and much of the world's history, right? This is so unusual. And women were known for not just caring most about their appearance, but an appearance that was provocative as their focus of worship. It was common in Ephesus for women who had been worshiping. They grew up worshiping. The whole city understands whether it's idol worship or participating in some kind of cult or were actually a part of the worship of Artemis. There was this relationship between Physical appearance, sex, and worship. And now, women are learning of the way of Jesus. And they're being compelled into this new young church. And they're coming in, and they still have the association of physical appearance with appropriate worship. Or worship that earns favor from the gods. And Paul begins this by saying, men... Soften yourselves. Instead of coming in with anger and the rough reputation, open your hands and worship. Surrendered worship. Soften your hearts. Women, do not make physical appearance in what you've understood worship to be, how you earn favor. Be what your worship in the context of the church is about. This is totally different. This is about the one new humanity that Jesus has made possible. We continue, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over man. She must be quiet. This is really maybe the, the, the crux of what makes you feel sweaty and like, whew, this is, this is scary, you know, <laughs> that, kind of, that kind of response. In a culture of women-only leadership, it's assumed that in this new belief, in the way of Jesus, women should take over. It's just second nature. Women should be in charge. There's nothing really wrong with that. And we see this in the other context of Paul and his writings. The way he partners with women and is co-working to build the church alongside women. It's not in and of itself wrong that a woman would come in and, and have influence or speak or give voice in the church. It's that the instinct is, because of the culture of Ephesus, that women would come in and quickly take over before 
learning the way of Jesus. This phrase, learn, to learn, should learn, in quietness, this is a phrase that implies education. It's very common. It's common in the New Testament. It's common in the way Jesus calls disciples. This is about sitting quietly to be educated and informed before you start speaking a lot with opinions. That's what this word means. Instead of coming in here and having a lot to say, slow down, slow down, quiet down, and be, be a listener and learner of the way of Jesus. This brings to mind Paul describing himself. We're talking about Paul here this morning. Paul describes his learning, the way of Jesus, under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was his mentor. We see this in Acts 22. Just read this quickly. Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city. I studied under the feet of Gamaliel. Under the feet of is this reference to quiet listening. I will sit at the feet while someone is teaching. And it's this statement of submission. Paul is describing, I sat under, that's what submission is, to be beneath the mission of another, I sat quietly under the leadership of Gamaliel who taught me before I became an apostle. Sitting under the feet of Gamaliel. This brings to mind Luke chapter 10, Mary and Martha. This is no mistake, the story of Mary and Martha. Martha invites Jesus into her home. They have this big gathering. He teaches. We don't know how many people are there. Jesus is clearly teaching in Martha's home. Martha is busy preparing, hosting, uh, leading the hospitality. She gets frustrated with her sister Mary. Mary is listening to Jesus. And I grew up in church thinking that the, the accusation is that Mary is being lazy. She's not doing what was called in the ancient world uh, the woman's virtue, working in the kitchen, supporting the important work of the men. She's being lazy. She doesn't want to be in the kitchen, so she's just kind of hanging out with the guys. That's not what Jesus is describing here. As Jesus and his disciples, this is in Luke 10, 38, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening. What's being described here isn't, uh, she doesn't want to be in the kitchen, so she's just going to hang out with the guys. She, What's being described, this is intentional language, just as Paul uses. Sitting at the feet of is being included as a disciple, as a follower, as someone who is learning so they may teach. And if you question that, Martha protests to Jesus. Uh, she was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She goes to Jesus, hey, my sister, tell her to come in here and help us. Be hospitable. And Jesus corrects Martha and says, don't take from Mary this moment, this gift. What he's referring to is to learn to be educated in the way of God's movement on earth, implying that so she will be able to teach also. Last part of this text, the concerning text. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But the woman will be saved through childbearing. This has been argued in church history as, uh, wow, so the order here 
of precedent as being Adam was, Adam was made first, then Eve, and because of the order, men are over women. And there's a lot wrong with that thinking. That's not what Paul's saying here. If we were going to follow that thinking, that would mean the animals are above us because the animals were made before we were. This is not about order, of um, sequential order of creation. This is describing how to a group of women who are, because of the context, struggling with arrogance, identifying themselves by their physical appearance, their worth is in how they look, in the unspeakable kinds of acts of worship in their context that we really can't get into much detail here this morning um, because we have kids and different ages with us. This is a statement of humbling women who've been in this very, very twisted, sadistic kind of worship, worship expression to a God that actually... You followed creation of the man. Let's not forget this, ladies. And if you get too far ahead of yourselves, let me just remind you that you were the one, ladies, is what Paul's saying, to this context of aggressive, take charge, overpower the church. It must be all women who lead this. Let me just remind you that you were the one who were deceived. But women will be saved through childbearing. This has uh, been terribly taught throughout church history at times as a woman's place is to give birth to children, part of the woman's virtue. And by accepting that role in life, God will somehow shine favor on you or will, will make room for you in his kingdom, kind of speak. Well, if that were true, that would mean in order to be rescued by God's love, every woman would have to give birth to a child. And Bible scholars agree, well, that's not what it's saying. The context suggests that this young church in Ephesus was struggling with Genesis chapter 3, where men and women together, collectively, had violated the way of God. Male and female together conspired to take control away in the Garden of Eden. That's so clear. And then God... Issues consequences. Not, I want this for you, but here's the consequence now. What a world of pain, what a world that is broken by selfishness will look like. And he talks about how humans will struggle with the sweat of their brow. Work will not be easy now. There will probably be injuries on the job and there will be hard work where you need rest. And you need to recuperate. Like God's describing this now. This is the kind of world you're now going to step into because you, you, you removed me, the creator, from the center. And now childbirth is going to be painful. This is part of what God's describing as this new world. And so this young church is most likely concerned about this, that God has somehow cursed women. And Paul is trying to correct this thinking that actually you're going to be preserved. Childbirth is painful. It is. That's the proper context of understanding Genesis chapter 3. But you will be preserved. God loves you. God cares for you. It is not a curse. That's what Paul's describing here. It's not this perpetual uh, 
marking of females. I want to end here with this, what I believe is really just the most remarkable. There's so many places we could look to. Jesus not only includes women and names them, and they are part of the... They are part of his movement among the 12 and the apostles and the larger group of 120 followers in Jerusalem. They're entrusted with the finances. This is just unspeakable of a rabbi. A rabbi has never spoken in daylight or in public in a teaching context to a woman. It's just not what rabbis do. The world is for men. Women support what men do. They're behind the scenes. They don't need to be educated. They don't need to be taught. Jesus is including women in his movement. And then we come to really the climatic moment. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record this. And I'm going to read Luke's description of the early morning of Easter Sunday. When they came back from the tomb, the women, the women went to the tomb with the spices. They find the tomb empty. They encounter Jesus alive. Mary Magdalene is called by his name, and she's like, Rabbi, you're alive. It's women who first see Jesus alive after his resurrection. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 disciples and to all the others that were there. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, Because their words seemed like nonsense. So Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. It's women who first encounter the resurrected Jesus. And it's women who first speak and declare to the apostles that he's alive. With Jesus' resurrection, he alters the course of human history, just as we see the progression away from slavery. The way we see Jesus moving our world of violence that we introduce to this world away from violence into where we would lay down our lives for someone. We see this movement of God's passion and love and character throughout the church and the crescendo, the climatic moment is the resurrection where dead things can now be made alive by God's power and God's life. Our world is now moving into the era of renewal. And it's as if the very first example of that will be, and women are going to be the witnesses of the most important moment in human history, and they will begin voicing. They will be the first voices of my resurrection, of this ability, this potential of resurrection in a world of death and hurt and harm and regret. To close out our morning, before our band closes us, Anike, who I pray with every Tuesday. We pray for you. We pray for our church. We pray for the future of our church. The example that we want our church to be in our community. Anike is going to come and read a scripture here this morning that we prayed together two weeks ago. And Anike, as you come, I just want to challenge you with just a couple of takeaways today. Grapple with scripture. Wrestle with Scripture, the idea of Scripture being God's intentional words to us. Words of life, read, listen, write down questions. Questions that confuse you. Ask for help. A significant part of a journey is exploring the mysterious. And our faith is a journey. It's remarkable what will open to you when you give time to something that's confusing or something that seems like that can't possibly be God. 
Dig in, ask questions. This is what we're here for. Start with the Gospels, start with Luke, start with John. And help us, help us build a church that looks for the image of God in women. This is something we're passionately committed to, okay? All right, Anike, thanks for closing our time. Hello, everyone. I am going to be reading Psalm 34. Lord, I'm bursting with joy over what you've done for me. My lips are full of perpetual praise. I'm boasting of you and all your works. So let all who are discouraged take heart. Join me, everyone. Let's praise the Lord together. Let's make him famous. Let's make his name glorious to all. Listen to my testimony. I cried to God in my distress, and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Gaze upon him, join your life with his, and joy will come. Your faces will glisten with glory. You'll never wear that shame face again. When I had nothing, desperate and defeated, I cried out to the Lord and he heard me, bringing his miracle deliverance when I needed it most. The angel of Yahweh stooped down to listen as I prayed, encircling me, empowering me, and showing me how to escape. He will do this for everyone who fears God. Drink deeply of the pleasures of this God. Experience yourself, for yourself, the joyous mercies he gives to all who turn to hide themselves in him. Worship in awe and wonder, and all who have been made holy, for all who fear him will feast with plenty. Even the strong and the wealthy grow weak and hungry, but those who passionately pursue the Lord will never lack any good thing. Come, children of God, and listen to me. I'll share the lesson I've learned of fearing the Lord. Do you want to live long and good life, enjoying the beauty that fills each day? Then never speak a lie or allow wicked words to come from your mouth. Keep turning your back on every sin and make peace your life motto. Practice being at peace with everyone. The Lord sees all we do. He watches over his friends day and night. His godly ones receive the answers they seek whenever they cry out to him. But the Lord has made up his mind to oppose evildoers and to wipe out even the memory of them from the face of the earth. Yet when holy lovers of God cry out to him with all their hearts, the Lord will hear them and come to rescue them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to all whose hearts are crushed by pain, and he is always ready to restore the repentant one. Even when bad things happen to the good and godly ones, the Lord will save them and not let them be defeated by what they face. God will be your bodyguard to protect you when trouble is near. Not one bone will be broken. Evil will cause the death of the wicked, for they hate and persecute 
the devoted lovers of God. Make no mistake about it. God will hold them guilty and punish them. They will pay the penalty. But the Lord has paid for the freedom of his servants, and he will freely pardon those who love him. He will declare them free and innocent when they turn to hide themselves in him. 